0: Well, hello, everyone. Great to see you. Thank you for all your well wishes and the welcoming back. And it was a very good trip. The last three weeks did some traveling for business, which basically takes me to uh, different biblical countries to film them. And I put together videos so people could see what the Bible lands look like, uh, those who can't travel. So it was really good. One of the great things about leaving America is coming back to America. (laughs) so many times in the process of the whole thing Uh, we didn't go to the uk though celeste so i'm sure it's just as efficient there but i tell you there's some places uh, in turkey and greece that you just sort of shake your head at the inefficiency of things you just think why don't you just make the line go this way instead of that way and we would all get through a lot faster and um, so anyway my cameraman and i more than once would turn to each other and say this is not america this is not america this is not america just to try to reboot our expectations. Anyway, so it's always great to come back to uh, to the United States uh, after being away from the United States. All our weaknesses notwithstanding, it's still a wonderful country in which to uh, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Even with the limiting uh, freedom that we are experiencing, or the freedom that is becoming more and more limited, and the uh, the days will probably be even even greater that we will struggle with. Uh, uh, true freedom, as our Constitution defines it, um, with, with the, even the word creator in there somehow is uh, left out of our discussions. Anyway, this is not a political message. So, well, you notice I brought a stool up here, and there's actually another stool up here already, but I brought this up here because this is one of the most interesting parts to me of a circus. Now, what do you use this for in a circus? For the lions, right. Now, the lion, (laughs) it's sort of a misnomer to call the the man or the woman that's locked in the cage with these lions a lion tamer. It's more of a lion teaser, aren't they? Because there's nothing tame about these animals. And I I don't know if you've ever seen, but I've seen some uh, incidents where it went really bad for the lion tamer. But the reason that they have a stool... I've I've often thought you know it makes sense when you're like um, looking at great white sharks to have the shark on the outside of the cage that you're in, but to be locked inside the cage with something that can eat you, this is what lion tamers do. I understand why they have whips, I understand why they have pistols, I don't understand why they have stools. It's like what are you going to do? Sit down and say, hey, Mr. Lion, let's uh, let's talk about this. Don't eat me. No, they have stools because. The lion struggles, and I'm told that cats in general struggle with this, which is not hard to believe. But notice there are four legs here, and if you try to focus on just one of these things, then it sort of is difficult to do. And this is the idea. A cat only has you know, a single focus, a lot like most men. There's only, only one thing you think about. So, ladies, next time you want to get your husband's attention, just walk in there and say, I want to talk about our marriage and see how it goes. But you do that to a, to a lion because a lion can't focus on more than one thing at a time. It struggles to, at least that's what I'm told. And so the, the four legs make it difficult for the lion to focus and in some sense give it a, a sense of paralysis, which is actually amazing. It just sort of sits there because its attention is fragmented. This is a, probably not the best, but it is a wonderful illustration of our current culture in the Christian life. George Barna, when he did a survey years ago of Americans, asked them why they are not more zealous about growing spiritually, American Christians. Two-thirds basically said, they're just too busy. I wonder what this was. It's right there. It's not this. Lectern keeps hitting me in the knee. <laughs> Two-thirds say they're just too busy to get involved and to be uh, effective spiritually. We've already got so much to do, they basically say, and Jesus comes along and asks us to do more. But this is in America where the average home has the television on seven hours a day. Seven hours a day. By the time the average American high school student graduates, he or she has watched 22,000 hours of television, has had 11,000 hours in the classroom, 10,000 hours of music, and only 600 hours of religious instruction, which basically amounts to church once a week. And this survey was actually done years ago. Today, this is back before the age of Smartphones. Today, the average American house or average American with a smartphone spends five and a half hours with their face in the phone every day. And two and a half hours of that is on social media. So are we a distracted people? We've got stools in our faces all day long. And it's not any wonder that our spiritual lives are a challenge in this culture, in our day and age. Our world is built to distract us. And, and if we'll be honest, in some cases, we welcome that distraction. Because, you know, some people would love to just be distracted all the way to the grave because life is just too hard. But here's the thing. God wants more for you than that. It's not just that Christ wants more from you. It's that Christ wants more for you. He wants a life that is life indeed, that we would finish well. You know, when you're young, you don't think about finishing well. You just sort of assume it. You just think there's always time ahead to finish well. And the reality is, we don't know if we're going to be alive in the next five minutes, much less the next 50 years. How do we finish well, whether it's the next five minutes or the next 50 years? Well, let's look together in the book of 2 Timothy which in a sense is Paul's last word on all things, but particularly we'll look at it with regard to the subject of finishing well. Paul wrote quite a few books in the New Testament. Of course, he is the one that wrote most of the New Testament books. And we've, we've gone through this before, but hopefully it's a helpful review that on his first missionary journey, Paul wrote one book. Galatians Second missionary journey he wrote two books, first and second Thessalonians. Third missionary journey he wrote three books first second Corinthians and Romans. so one, two three, and then on his fourth, you might call it a journey, but it was his trip to Rome in his first Roman imprisonment, he wrote four books. we call them the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. Then he was released and for a short time, and then was imprisoned again, but in the between those two imprisonments, he wrote the pastoral epistles. And his final letter was to his protege, Timothy, and 2 Timothy is that book. It was the year A.D. 60, as uh, most conservative scholars would date the, the, the apostolic times, that the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in the, ver- the very first time, for two years. In fact, the book of Acts ends with that statement. His first Roman imprisonment, it says he was there for two full years in his own rented quarters. And we know that during this time, uh, he, he uh, brought many people to Christ and introduced them to the things of the kingdom of God. Uh, after that, he was released. And we are told through his epistles that followed, we sort of pieced together the timeline of the end of his life, that he traveled after that in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, and in Macedonia, which is modern Greece, And from there, he wrote 1 Timothy. Then Paul traveled probably to Spain. We know this was his desire because he said that at the end of the book of Romans. And during the summer that Paul was in Spain, probably A.D. 64, there was a great fire that broke out in Rome. You probably heard about the great fire of Rome. Well, it was during that time that Nero... Uh, basically blamed the Christians for starting the fire, and thus began the great persecution of Christians. And it was during that persecution of Christians that the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. In fact, when you go to Rome, you'll go to the uh, St. Peter's Square, and uh, there's a big obelisk there, but basically it's in that area where Peter was killed in the summer of AD 64. Several years after that, the Apostle Paul was arrested and brought to Rome for the final time. Again, if you go to Rome, you can go to the Roman Forum. There's a place at the Roman Forum that doesn't get a lot of uh, publicity, as it were, but it's where it's called the, uh, the, the Julia, Basilica Julia. This is where Paul stood trial, and right beside that is what's called the Mamertine prison, which is where Paul was incarcerated. In fact, it was called the carcer, which means prison. We get our word incarcerated from that. It was basically the holding tank for condemned prisoners. And from this hole in the ground, which is really what it is, the Apostle Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy. We won't read the whole book. Obviously, it's worthy of a series. But we're going to start in chapter 2 as Paul talks about ending well and particularly specific challenges for Timothy and for us. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So, pause there for a second and look at the details of this because it's worthy of personal attention. Paul says, uh, be strong. He says, you, my son, be strong. And the emphasis is very clear in the original language. You. It's it's like he underscores that. You be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Interesting that he would say grace. Because that's where your relationship with Christ Jesus begins. At a place where you realize that, you know, if you're gonna have a relationship with God, it's not because of the good life you've lived or your church attendance or anything else other than the grace of God. We can't earn god's holiness because we've all sinned but thankfully his grace has sent his son jesus to die on the cross and to rise again to show us that our sins are paid for he says be strong in the grace never lose that that is the foundation of your walk with christ and it's important that we be strong in that not just not just that we give mental assent to it but here is timothy a very mature still a young man but very mature christian At this point, Paul, at the end of his life, telling Timothy, be strong in this very basic thing, in the grace of God. God's grace becomes the motivation by which we live a life of faithfulness. You be strong, he says. Nobody is going to have a relationship with Christ for you. It's up to you to have your personal relationship with Christ. Your parents aren't going to help you. Your kids aren't going to make it happen. Your pastor's not going to make it happen, or at least he shouldn't. And uh, nobody, no one else is going to do it but you. It's your responsibility, and it's my responsibility. We would all give, I think, mental assent to the fact that our spiritual lives are the most important thing, but we get so little of our time. That's because we've got these stools in our faces, so often. And your stool may be different than mine, but they are all distractions to us. And I think sometimes we also you know, honestly, for the most part, we think we've sort of mastered the basic principles of Scripture. You know, I mean, ask me a question. Go ahead. Ask me a question. And I'll bet you I can nail it. We've mastered the basics in in the Christian life, haven't we? Uh, And we get so comfortable with those that we sort of assume them. And we think that our spiritual life is really more of spiritual maintenance rather than spiritual growth. We've just, we've kind of, we're real comfortable with where we are in our walk with Christ. I just sort of hang out here and for the rest of my life. But we, we do that because the standard are those around us. I mean, if you look at those around us, compared to them, you know, you're pretty spiritual, aren't you? at least in our hearts. It's sort of like when you're driving on the highway. Have you ever noticed how you're always the best driver on the highway? (laughs) In the spiritual life, unfortunately, it's often that way as well. We tend to judge others by what? Their actions, but us by our motives. Have you heard that? It's true. We think we give ourselves a break because we know our motives were, wow, we'd do better if we really could. And others look at us and think, boy, they're not doing very well. Well, the reality is that our culture is not the standard. Our church is not the standard. The marathon class is not the standard. The standard is Christ. And that means we are constantly challenged to grow. None of us has arrived. Even the Apostle Paul admitted that he had not yet arrived. We don't conform to our church, we conform to Christ. We have bought into the idea, that sounds better than saying it's a lie, but it is a lie that, a good, that all a good Christian is to do is to, is to be moral and attend church and read the Bible. That's all God expects of me. Read the Bible on a daily basis, go to church on a weekly basis, and live a moral life. That's it. That's what I'm here for. Half of all Christian adults and more than two-thirds of all Christian teenagers say they are still searching for meaning in life. Half of Christian adults, two-thirds of Christian teenagers, still searching for meaning in life. Now, don't answer out loud, but ask yourself that question. Are you still searching for meaning in life as a Christian? What is our purpose if it's not just to read our Bible and live moral life and go to church? Why are we here? Paul says, be strong in your personal relationship with Christ. But notice, it doesn't stop there. We're only at verse 1. Look at the next verse, verse 2. Paul writes, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Sometimes translations don't translate everything, and sometimes translations change over the years. Like, I think it's the 1970-whatever version it was of the New American Standard, which is what I'm reading, had the word and at the beginning of verse 2. Now, this is the 1995 version, and I've looked, and the 2020 version doesn't have the word and either. So I don't have and here, and I don't know if your Bible has and at the beginning of verse 2, but it should. It should. So whenever you get close to a ballpoint pen here in the next 24 hours, write the word and in before verse 2 because it's in the Greek. In fact, I checked again this morning and it's still in the Greek. (laughs) And the things which you have heard from me. What does that mean? It means that our Christian life is not just verse 1. It is also verse 2. And so here is a great principle the first principle of three that we'll look at for finishing well. And it's simply this, God's will for your life is to be a disciple and to make disciples. God's will for your life is, verse 1, to be a disciple and, verse 2, to make disciples. Remember what Christ told the disciples just before He ascended or shortly before He ascended? We call it the Great Commission. But the great command in the Great Commission was to make disciples. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. And then there's sort of a two-part way that you do that. Baptizing, that is sharing Christ with them, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And that's a lifelong project. But that is a command given corporately to the church. It's impossible for any individual to fulfill that command by themselves. No one individual can go to all nations. This is a command for the church. But we each participate in that by contributing our various gifts in the body of Christ. Personal involvement for a corporate goal. God's will for your life is to be a disciple and to make, a, make disciples. We stop most of our Christian life at verse 1. We want to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But wait a minute. And, Paul says, the things which you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these, meaning the things that you've heard, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And ladies, the word there for men doesn't just mean males. It means people, faithful people who will be able to teach others also. It includes women. Keep your finger here, if you would, and turn the page to the right, a page or two, to the book of Titus, and look at Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 3. Titus 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Notice that is a life devoted to Christ. Verse 4, so that they may encourage or literally train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Older women. Now, any older women here? I'll let you answer that. But notice what this is saying. Paul is saying you haven't lived this long for nothing. Younger women need the wisdom of your years. They need to be taught, to be trained, to be encouraged, to love their husbands. In fact, it's interesting, the word there for love their husbands is not agape, it's not a sacrificial love, though that's certainly required. The word there is phileo, in other words, to like their husbands. That takes training, (laughs) That takes training to love their children, and then the rest of the list goes on. And ladies, if you, as older women, don't train younger women somehow to do this, then the culture is ready to step in to to fill in the gap. Because young women are thirsting for mentors and for wisdom, and young men are as well. But I mention the young women here and, and older women because Paul doesn't mention it specifically to Timothy here in Second Timothy. So turn back to Second Timothy. Notice the generations. Second Timothy 2, verse 2. Notice the generations here of reproduction. He says, the things you've heard from me, from, so from me, there's one, Paul, and there's Timothy, this is the second generation, and trust these to faithful men, that's the third generation, who'll be able to teach others also, that's the fourth generation. In other words, the Christian life is to be passed on, and it's passed on in the context of, of personal relationships. Discipleship isn't, it's, it, it's something that's done at church, but it's not just something that's done at church. In fact, that's not where it begins. Second Timothy, we're in chapter 2. Look back up at chapter 1, verse 5. Second Timothy 1, verse 5. Paul tells Timothy, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, "'You, however, continue in the things you have learned "'and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, "'that from childhood you have known the sacred writings "'which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation "'through faith which is in Christ Jesus.' All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul's saying the process that I'm describing to you, Timothy, is not something that began with you and me. It's something that began with you and your grandmother, you and your mother, when you were a little boy growing up at Lystra, When your mother and your grandmother were teaching you the word of God, they were putting in you the sacred writings that give you wisdom that not only lead to salvation, but also equip you for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that you may be equipped for every good work. Discipleship, Timothy is told, begins in the home. Your most important disciples, now granted for most of us here in this room, Our most important disciples are long gone, our kids. But grandkids are also mentioned here, and by principle, great-grandkids. Never underestimate the power and the influence that a grandparent can have on on grandkids. Now, I know I don't look old enough to be a grandparent, but that's coming soon. (laughs) My daughter's getting married next month, and so possibly this time next year I could be Granddaddy Wayne. Can you imagine that? That's going to be great. And one of the reasons it's going to be great is because I will have the privilege of pouring Jesus Christ into these little kids, just like I did into my kids. Timothy is told by Paul, look, what you have learned from your grandmother and from your mother is not just for you. It's for you to pass on. I'm just building on what they did. And I want you to pass on what I've built into you as well. In other words, discipleship begins in the home, but it doesn't end there. We take what we've learned and we pass it on to others. Maybe for you, you learned the scriptures or you learned about Christ from your parents, and that'd be great, or maybe from your grandparents. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you got it from a pastor or from a friend or from uh, somebody else in your life that God graciously brought into your life. But hey, however you learned it, you learned it, and you get to pass it on. We teach what we know, but here's, here's a sobering truth. We reproduce what we are. You teach what you know, but you reproduce what you are. You notice how if you live the Christian life around your kids, that they really pick up on that. And if you don't live the Christian life around your kids, they pick up on that too. I remember one time uh, my daughter... I was praying, and I was just mumbling through a prayer. I I guess I just kind of got into a rut every night dinner. You know, Lord, thanks for the food, and, uh, you know, blessed to our bodies, and amen. I don't remember what it was, but it was something probably to that depth. And I said amen, and I looked over, and my daughter, Katie, the one who's getting married next month, she's like eight years old, and she's just wide-eyed looking straight at me. She said, you know, you pray the same thing every night. Ooh. So anyway, the next night, I prayed from the heart. And she said, you changed it. (laughs) So they notice, don't they? They definitely notice. Howard Hendricks once said, if you want to do something, you find a way. If you don't want to do something, you find an excuse. We are called to reproduce. Our goals for our Christian life cannot just be for our Christian life. Our goals spiritually also need to be in the lives of others. Think of yourself like a lobster. Carol, do you think of yourself like a lobster? (laughs) I don't mean red and crabby. I mean, think about molting. A lobster has a skeleton on the outside. We have skeletons on the inside. And when our skeletons grow, everything on the outside grows. Sometimes it grows a little too much. Lobsters aren't that way lobsters have their skeleton on the outside. It's called an exoskeleton. And in order to grow, they've got to crawl outside that skeleton from time to time. In fact, I read that they do this 25 times in their first seven years. you imagine? And this lobster, obviously, it's easier for the lobster to just kind of, you know, stay in the comfortable shell rather than to to go uh, outside the shell and to be vulnerable for that brief period of time until their exoskeleton hardens up again. It's easy to stay where you are, isn't it? It's hard to push out of the exoskeleton. It's hard to push out of the walls that we build around us to protect us in order to grow. But if we don't, if the lobster didn't, then that shell would soon become his prison, and it would finally become his casket if he didn't grow, if he didn't push outside the framework. Same with us. Our structure What we put around us, our framework, what we're protecting ourselves with, if we don't push outside that and if we don't grow, then we will not, you know, we will not live the Christian life that God's designed us to live. We'll be stuck where we are. Some time ago, I was working out at a gym. I don't do this a lot, but I remember one time when I was there real early in the morning and there was a guy on the other side of the gym that was just making noise. I don't know if any of you. Have ever been to a gym Ladies probably not seen this But maybe you have But uh, there used to be When this particular gym This guy would would be over there And it sounded like the man was giving birth (laughs) (laughs) I thought something was wrong I I went over there and looked at him He's fine He's just lifting I mean this ungodly amount of weight And he is screaming I mean he he didn't mind screaming. He was, it was fine with him. He went through, I think I counted most of the vowels in, in the English language. you! sometimes why? He didn't care that anybody heard him. And I thought, you know what, if that's what it takes to, to be a Hulk like him, I don't want to be that fanatical. That's not that important to me. And then it sort of struck me, you know, the difference between him and me is he takes it seriously. I'm just kind of there because, you know, I, it makes me feel good about exercising. Not that it ever helps at all. But this guy really took it seriously. And I began to think the difference between the, uh, sort of a working definition of a fanatic and the rest of us is a fanatic is somebody who takes anything more seriously than we do. Because, of course, we're the standard, right? On the highway we're the standard, and the Christian life we're the standard. We sort of default to that in most things in life. And if somebody takes something more seriously than we do, that sort of threatens us. Like, well, maybe I should do that. And we label them a fanatic, and then we're able to get rid of them in our mind. But fanatics in the Christian life, uh, they're, just, they're just a challenge in convicting if we're not humble enough to crawl out sh- outside our lobster shell and grow. Look at Paul's challenge here in verse 3. He says, Suffer hardship with me. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul says, Suffer hardship with me. He didn't just say suffer hardship. He says, I'm doing it too. I am suffering hardship. I want you to do it with me. I am modeling what I'm telling you. And he uses this illustration of a soldier. Not only a soldier, but a good soldier. A good soldier is willing to suffer hardship if that's what being a good soldier requires. It's the picture of focus. And So when he talks about us growing in the spiritual life, here is an illustration of focus. The soldier doesn't get entangled in everyday affairs. In fact, the word that he uses here for entangled in the original language was a word that was used of weaving. It's something that something gets so enmeshed or entangled in something else that it's impossible to pull it apart. Uh, Christ has enrolled us as full-time soldiers, and we seek to please him by giving ourselves to, to him without distraction. Doesn't mean we don't that we ignore the affairs of everyday life. We have to do that to be responsible. But there's a difference between being effective in everyday life and being entangled in it. To be so entangled in everyday life that we don't have time to make disciples is is being too entangled. Paul says, be focused. He gives a second example in verse 5. He says, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Competes as an athlete. The word there is actually one word in the original language, athleo. we get our word, athlete, athletic. It means, uh, it's a picture of discipline. So if the first one is a picture of focus, this is a picture of discipline. And it comes from a word that means to struggle. It's, um, it's not easy being an athlete. An athlete is a strain. And Paul says, this is a great picture. I read uh, just this week, maybe you saw it in the news as well, where there is a, an athlete, a runner, who was disqualified because she had an illegal substance in her body. And of course, there's all this debate whether or not she should be disqualified, but the point is she was, because she wasn't competing according to the rules. It's exactly what Paul is saying here. He says, uh, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. We have to be focused. We have to be disciplined, Paul says. And then finally, he gives the example of a soldier, verse 6. Uh, I'm sorry, of a, uh, a farmer, verse 6. He says, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So as the soldier serves to please his commander, as the athlete competes to win the prize, so the hardworking farmer receives the first share of the crops. The hardworking farmer. This is a farmer who is willing to do hard work. So here's the second principle from the text. And uh, it's pretty simple, but it's difficult in its assignment. The normal Christian life requires focus, discipline, and hard work. That's the normal Christian life. We tend to think of the normal Christian life it sort of happens by default. That, you know, if I'm balanced and if I'm sort of doing everything that Christ wants me to do, things are gonna roll along pretty smooth and God's gonna bless it. This was the delusion that Job's counselors were under. Remember? They said, Job, the reason all this bad stuff's happening to you is because there's sin in your life. We tend to think that same thing, even though we've got the book of Job and so many other great examples in the scripture. No, the normal Christian life is a life of focus, discipline, and hard work. A.W. Tozier in his book, Rut, Rot, or Revival, great title, he says this, "...think about people who find themselves in religious ruts. They discover a number of things about themselves." They will find that they are getting older but not getting any holier. Time is their enemy, not their friend. The time that they trusted and looked to is betraying them, for they often said to themselves, the passing of time will help me. As I get older, I'll get holier and better. They said that the year before last, but they were not helped any last year. Time betrayed them. They were not any better last year than they had been the year before. I remember one time, Uh, I was working with, in another, totally other church, other ministry, a youth uh, individual that was working with the youth, who told me a number of times, he said, you know, I've had 25 years of, of, of education experience. And finally, I asked him, I said, have you had 25 years of education experience, or have you had one year of education experience repeated 25 times? Because the guy didn't improve at all. As time went along, there was never any evaluation of what he did. It was just sort of, I just kind of got it dialed in. I'm just going to repeat it. This is our challenge when we get into a spiritual rut. The normal Christian life requires focus, discipline, and hard work. We need the focus of a soldier. We don't allow ourselves to get entangled, entangled in the affairs of everyday life. We still take care of it, but they don't entangle us. We need the discipline of an athlete where we live faithfully so as not to be disqualified. We need the hard work of a farmer who gets the thrill firsthand of seeing others grow in the walk with God, gets to enjoy the fruit. And then Paul gives the ultimate example here, and that, of course, is Jesus. Look at verse 8. "'Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel.' for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who were chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Again, notice Paul's perspective. It's not just me, Paul says, but I'm doing this for others. My spiritual life is not just about me, my spiritual life is also about others. That Christ wants our spiritual life to be personal. He doesn't want our spiritual life to be private. And we sometimes confuse those two, especially in this culture where you better keep it private, buddy, or you're going to find yourself in some kind of a, a libel suit or whatever. The ultimate example is Jesus. And Jesus modeled all of these, didn't he? Jesus had focus, Jesus had discipline, Jesus had hard work. Paul says, even though I'm chained, the word of God is not chained. What a wonderful principle. You know, even when you're in conversations with people, you don't have to say, by the way, the book of Isaiah chapter 22 says this. Just tell them what Isaiah 22 says. Don't even tell them it's the Bible. But the truth of the word of God can penetrate people's lives. I remember one time reading about uh, D.L. Moody. Who was, was it Moody or was it... I think it was Spurgeon, who came and was testing out the acoustics in an auditorium. And he was by himself, walked out on the stage, and he usually did this before he preached, just to kind of get the feel of the room. And he was standing there on the stage, and he just kind of hollered out, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hmm. So he he understood, this is how the room works, and he left. A janitor, standing up in the back with a broom, heard that and came to Christ. I mean, Spurgeon never said, by the way, this is in the book of John. Here's the chapter. It's just the truth of the word of God is powerful. Paul says, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Some of Paul's greatest works were written when he was stuck in a room with a pen. The pastoral epistles. Um, or 2 Timothy, I should say, and then the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Think about the wisdom we've gotten from those books when Paul was imprisoned. But God's word is not imprisoned. In fact, the very last verse of the book of Acts says that, that the word was unhindered. So, hmm, do we need to stand up and turn around? Is it, as Dr. Toussaint would say, too sophorific in here? (laughs) You're looking at me like, what's for lunch? All right, well, let's look at one more chapter here. Look at chapter 4, and we're almost done, if that helps. Chapter 4, look at verse 6. One more principle of finishing well. Chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord... The righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says that he's finished well. Paul. And notice what he says. Like a soldier, he has fought the good fight. He didn't say like a soldier, but he just says that. I fought the good fight. Like an athlete, he has finished the course. Like a farmer, he has kept the faith. Paul could read the writing on the wall, so to speak, at the Mamertine prison and realize his days were numbered. And his confidence was not in himself, but it was in the word of God. Um, Look down at verse 11. It's not just Paul who has finished well. But verse 11, Paul says, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Mark. Who is Mark? Mark is John Mark. Mark is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. But Mark is also the one, back in Acts chapter 13, if you remember, that went with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey and said, ah, this is too much for me. I'm leaving. And he left. In fact, Paul called it desertion. And the second missionary journey, Barnabas goes, hey, let's take John Mark along. Paul goes, no, I'm not taking John Mark along. He deserted us on the first, the first journey. We're not taking him on this one. So Paul and Barnabas split. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes right back to where they started where John Mark failed, and Barnabas brought John Mark along. And so did the Apostle Peter, we know. Apostle Peter called Mark his son. Peter knew a thing or two about failure and bouncing back, didn't he? He had a lot to teach, John Mark. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark, its emphasis, particularly the ending of Mark, remember when we went through the book of Mark, we saw that Mark taught on repentance after failure as a major theme. So, only 13 years after John Mark's failure, Paul would write uh, in the book of Colossians. Just listen, if you would, to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. That's sort of hidden, There, not only does Paul commend Mark 13 years after Paul said, he ain't coming along, now Paul is saying Mark is worthy of being welcomed. But he's riding to Colossae. Where was Colossae? Colossae was in Turkey. Where did John Mark fail? Turkey. In other words, John Mark was going back to the very place that he had failed. And the Colossians were told, welcome him. Don't push him away. 2 Timothy 4.11, we just read that. Don't miss the fact that Paul wanted to see not only Timothy, but also Mark. He says, bring Mark. Bring him. What a wonderful thing. Imagine if you were Mark reading that. I'd like to see Mark. Ah, it'd be great. Whereas before Paul had said, Mark ain't part of this ministry. Now he says, bring him along. He is helpful for my ministry. Wonderful change. Not only in John Mark, but also in Paul here at the end of his life. Well, here's the third and final principle. And this is one that you and I need to get our arms around. Simply this, regardless of your past, determine today to finish well. Regardless of your past, determine today to finish well. You got a past? You know, one of those pasts that you don't want to talk about? One of those paths that Satan reminds you about? A lot. And every time you think about doing something for Jesus Christ, you hear this little voice. You hear the Peter's rooster. You hear the failure echoing in your mind. John Mark heard that. Peter heard that. And in some sense, Paul heard that. Remember Paul's former life as a Pharisee. He dragged Christians off to be imprisoned and to their death. And yet, that's not what we remember Paul for, is it? We remember Paul being the apostle of grace. We remember how he ended his life, not how he began it. And that's what matters. What matters is how we end. And the good news, it's never too late to finish well. It's never too late to finish well. There's three perspectives. There's your past, which you cannot change. There is your present, which you can determine, all right, Regardless of my past, I am choosing today to finish well. There's your present, uh, there's your past, there's your present, and there's your casket. You thought I was going to say future, didn't you? (laughs) Think of the end. Think of the end. There's your past, there's your present, there's your casket. You want to end well. Determined to end well. And ending well begins now. It doesn't, you know... Begin at the end, because you don't know that today's not the end, is it? It's true for all of us. You never know. It's never too late to finish well. So, those principles, once again, that we've looked at in the text. First, God's will for your life is to be a disciple and to make disciples. Second, the normal Christian life requires focus, discipline, and hard work. And then finally, regardless of your past, determine today to finish well. I love that as the Apostle Paul puts his pen down there, and I can just picture it, I've, I've been in the Mamertine prison down in that dark, dank room where the Apostle Paul probably wrote this, and I can just picture him putting the, putting the pen down for the last time, the last bit of scripture that he would ever write, his last letter to his dear friend, and he models for us that the legacy we leave at the end is the legacy we leave. But you know, it's not so much about the legacy we leave but what we've done for God, what we've done for Christ, for his glory. Let's determine that today we're going to live for Jesus Christ and finish well, just as our brother Paul did. Let's pray. Father, where can we begin as we look at the, um, the great truth of Second Timothy? Where can we begin to give you thanks for the humility of Paul for the uh, intimate conversation that he had with his dear friend in the faith, Timothy. Thank you for the principles that we've been able to glean from this text today and the reminder that your grace is not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but it's all throughout, all the way to the very end. That like Mark, who failed, the Apostle Paul wanted to have him around at the end because you'd done a great work in Mark's life. You've done great work in our lives. You have caused us in many sense, in many ways to turn corners by your grace, to say no to that which would lure us into the deception of the world, to somehow be snapped awake like a, a li- like a lion staring at a chair or staring at a stool. All of a sudden we're awakened to the fact that we're distracted, that we are entangled in the, in the things of the world and that we need to be like a good soldier, focused, like an athlete. We need to be disciplined, like a farmer. We need to be hardworking, that this is the normal Christian life. Thank you for these reminders today, and I pray, Father, for any who are here that are so weighted down by a life, in their mind, of failure, that they really are no good for Jesus Christ in the rest of their days. We've seen from the text that that's just not so and that we can begin today, this very day, to choose to end well. Help us to do that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.